Hey, I'm Glenn Robinson, and I've spent the last 30 years as a healthcare leader and overseeing large organizations. And before that, I was in the news business. And I'm Jacob Robinson, his son. I've spent the last five years building a business and learning lessons of leadership along the way. And this is our podcast, Chasing What Matters. On this podcast, we're going to interview leaders from all walks of life and hear their stories of successes and failures and what has made them become who they are today and how their faith and families played a role in their lives and leadership styles. During these interviews, we will be discussing things from business to politics, healthcare to nonprofit, and anything in between to find out how these leaders are chasing what matters in their work and personal life. So welcome to another episode of Chasing What Matters. Hello, everyone. We're so glad that you could join us for another episode of the Chasing What Matters podcast. I'm your co-host, Glenn Robinson. And I'm your other co-host, Jacob Robinson. Our guest today is Nathan Sheets. Nathan is the founder and chief steward of Nature Nate's Honey Company, the number one branded and fastest growing honey company in the United States. Nathan got the nickname Nature Nate in college because he was a nature lover and an outdoorsman. And after graduating from college and owning his own ad agency, Nathan began serving in the ministry. He has journeyed to more than 100 mission trips all over the world with the goal of helping others. He was also one of the driving forces behind the global I Am Second media campaign that highlights stories of hundreds of lives transformed through the grace of Jesus Christ. In 2010, he decided to make honey his full-time endeavor, and life has never been sweeter, as he says. And also, Nate likes to say the Lord has blessed us so we can be a blessing to others. Nathan, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me, Jacob and Glenn. Excited to get to be here with you guys today. Yes, well, we're super excited to talk about the honey business, but let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Uh, Nathan, tell us where you're from and, and what growing up was like. Um, man, I'd love to do that. But honestly, before we even start, I, I do have to ask, um, two weekends ago, how did you guys get along with the A&M Alabama football game? <laughs> I'll let him answer that one. Well, this is time of honest <laughs> confession. I grew up in Georgia. I went to the University of Georgia. The University of Alabama was gracious enough to allow me to finish my senior year in college. So my, I hold a degree from the University of Alabama. In my heart of hearts, Nathan, I'm a Georgia Bulldog. And so uh, and so he's and, still riding high. So, I mean, it's a, it's a win-win for him. Right? I mean, <laughs> well, and also we're blessed to have two of our three children that are Aggies. And uh, I, I was uh, – first time I was ever on that campus, I just looked around and go, man, I'd love to be an Aggie too. So I am very, very proud of, uh, of what the Aggies did. Well, Jacob, I mean, prior to this year, was he always like, yeah, I went to Alabama. Uh-huh. Well, uh, you know, listen, uh, as Alabama fans, uh, you know, and I may get some comments from this, uh, Alabama fans are Alabama fans when it suits the conversation. So, you know, uh, and now he's Georgia as their number one in the country, right? And I'll do this because I'll, I'll, I'll you know, listen as my brother-in-law right here. So my brother-in-law went to Baylor as an undergrad and then got his master's from Georgia. And now he just rocks his Georgia hat. And his Baylor stuff because they're both winning right now. So, uh, you know, not everybody is like an Aggie where you just have to live in the trenches uh, a good chunk of the time and own it. So, I guess the moral of the story is make sure you go to two universities that tend to win at football, uh, oh, and and you're always protected there. 
Well, I've got two boys at CSTAT, and uh, and so uh, I'm, I never thought that my money would go maroon, you know, because my heart was burnt orange growing up in uh, in Austin. So yes, yes, well, money anyway. also has a way of uh, turning hearts too. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. No, but um, no, super excited to be here with you guys today. And and as I kind of referenced, uh, grew up in Austin, but before that, my dad was an Air Force officer and so uh, moved literally every 18 months uh, from zero to age 14. Um, so live in California, Florida, uh, Alabama, Virginia, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Ohio, Alabama, Nebraska, you know, multiple states twice. So um, as soon as we got into a place, we started packing up for the next move. And I don't know if we ever fully got unloaded, but uh, my dad retired and uh, grew up in Austin with high school and then uh, wound up going to Southwest Texas uh, down there. <clears throat> so got to spend a lot of time down in Austin and that's kind of my uh, my affinity for the Longhorns. Uh, but uh, we moved up here to Dallas after I got out of college. Um, my brother and I had started a pen and pencil company and it was based here um, out of Dallas. And so I had moved up here and actually got a job. I always wanted to be in advertising. And so got a job uh, with the advertising agency that had our um, account and did that for a little bit is kind of my first job out of uh, out of college. But that's how I wound up up here in Dallas. Well, Nathan, I have to ask, um, when you were growing up, uh, how how was it? How did it feel being bounced around about every year and a half? And now as an adult looking back, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I remember when I moved to Austin and got into high school and, you know, started going to school with kids that had grown up together all their lives. And I remember, you know, talking to these boys and they're like, yeah, we've been best friends since kindergarten. I thought that is so weird. <laughs> you know, I, thought, I thought everybody else was, you know, um, um, migratory like us, you know, nomadic in nature. Uh, but, you know, it was it was great from the standpoint that uh, we drove from California to Virginia and it was just us and two cars. And so, you know, a lot of family time um, and growing up on Air Force bases, you know, was fun, but also had its drawbacks. And I think as an adult now, um, you, you know, I can make friends with anybody Um and, you know, definitely gives you a very outgoing personality. I love change. You know, if something's not broken, I'm going to break it just so I can make it change. And so I love the new. Um, I'm a great sales guy, but I'm not a good account manager. You know, I'm a good evangelist, but I'm a, not a good discipler. And, and so, I mean, those are things I really had to work on of going deep because, if I, you know, after I knew you for 18 months, you didn't matter anymore because I was going on to the next place. And so, and I would say that the, you know, probably the most negative side as, as I now, you know, can kind of reflect back is it really creates um, an ability to be uh, very image management focused. And so, you know, I, I think as a believer, um, those things are detrimental to our walk with the Lord, you know, to not live in authenticity and transparency, which is something I've really, you know, strive for in my later adult years. But earlier in kind of my midlife years, um, it was something that had, you know, negative impact in my life. Wow. Great insight. Great yeah. insight. Yeah. Uh, you've been very involved in the I Am Second <clears throat> movement. And tell us about that project and uh, what you have learned uh, from that and uh, from the time that you've been involved with I Am Second. 
And, and, and perhaps for our listeners that are not familiar, uh, give them just a quick intro as to what that program is all about. Yeah. Um, so I'm second is a, um, online, um, media campaign that was really focused on answering, uh, the question of people asking, what do you mean you're second? Aren't we supposed to be first? And I think everybody in life, you're, you know, you're striving to be number one, whether you're Alabama or, um, or whether you're a company or, or a country, you know, everybody wants to be first. And so even the statement of I am second as a declaration makes people kind of cock their head sideways and go, what do you mean? And uh, Joe White, who's with um, Canacuck, uh, Joe White used to give me a hard time all the time because he would say, no, we're supposed to be third. And I said, well, Joe, that's a discipleship thing. You know, people are trying to be first. And so until they understand that Christ is first in their life and now they're second, then they can start to focus on others and then make themselves third. So um, so it's really uh, a campaign that we utilize different people um, that have different uh, challenges in life or platforms in life, whether they're um, addictions or uh, celebrityisms or uh, whatever it is, uh, but we really use these um, these video um, uh, interviews with people to use them as a tool for people to have spiritual conversations. And so, Jacob, if you and I were going to go to lunch, um, I would send you you know, maybe Colt McCoy's, uh, who is the UT quarterback, you know, back when we were doing it, send you um, Colt McCoy's interview because you were a Longhorn fan. Say, hey, let's talk about this at lunch. And so it really helps cue up a spiritual conversation, um, which I think is the biggest challenge for believers to get into uh, is how do you get in, you know, to have a spiritual conversation. But that really bird was bird out of me going on a mission trip. Um, back in 1997, which was birthed out of me going through an evangelism class um, called Evangelism Explosion, where you actually go out and do door-to-door evangelism and knock on people's doors. And so had the opportunity um, when I had my um, small ad agency that I started, shared the gospel with one of my advertising clients and had the opportunity to lead this elderly gentleman to the Lord, you know, as I was in my mid-20s. And was so impactful that I committed to be a trainer um, the following year and have my own team go out and go to evangelism. And so Sunday afternoon, I realized that as we're going to go out and actually go knock on doors, I mean, literally you go door to door um, in apartment complexes. And I started just getting really nervous thinking, man, I'm the guy front and center before it was trainer, you know, door trainer me. And now I'm, I'm right there. And so I met my team, a sky and girl on our first night and, said, hey, let's get to know each other. We can go out next week. And that was fine. Next Sunday, same stress came back. I said, hey, let's role play tonight. You know, we'll, the guy goes, I thought we were supposed to do evangelism. I said, we'll get there, brother. Lay off me. So, <laughs> you know, so Monday morning, literally the next day, I was just pr- praying on my knees in my office, just asking the Lord to help me get over this fear about doing door-to-door evangelism. And it was louder than audible. God just said, go on a mission trip. And so I had seen that a friend of mine that my wife and I had supported was going on a mission trip in a couple of weeks. And so I called him and asked him if I could go with him. He told me his trip was postponed, but this other guy was going to Venezuela on Friday. This was a Monday. So I didn't have shots, records, passports, nothing. But four days later, I found myself outside of Crocus, Venezuela, doing what? Knocking on doors and doing door-to-door evangelism. So... 
the guy that led my trip uh, that I went on had started this ministry, uh, Global Missions Fellowship. Um, and so I wound up, uh, long story short, wound up going on staff with that organization about a year later um, and shut down the agency that I had, raised support. And Patty and I did that from, um, you know, 1998 until 2010. And so it was a um, evangelism church planting ministry. But I think my own spiritual journey of evangelism um, and just my own um, personal spiritual giftedness of evangelism is what really, you know, kind of helped uh, lay the groundwork um, to be able to do I Am Second. And so it was with myself um, and another gentleman, Adam Leidig, uh, who was in a Sunday school class of mine. And Adam was a creative director uh, that had come on staff with us at E3. And then, um, but really the, it was a, uh, a, a vision that the Lord was birthing in a bird, the Norm Miller's heart from interstate battery and Norm's a mentor and dear friend of, of mine. Um, but he really felt like God was challenging him to do something in his own Jerusalem at 70 years old. And he had funded Jesus film project in Russia and other countries around the world. But he felt like on his 70th birthday, he spent time with the Lord. God just said, have you gone for broke in your own Jerusalem? And so he's sharing this story with me. And he said, Nathan, if I was going to try to sell more batteries, I'd do an advertising campaign and I would probably use a celebrity. And so as he's sharing that with me, the Lord just dropped this billboard in my head. And I said, okay, Norm, imagine you're driving down the highway and you see a billboard. It's got Dirk Nowinski, who's with Dallas Mavericks. He's number one in Dallas. And I said, but this billboard says, I am second, and it drives you to this website, IamSecond.com. We share the gospel using Dirk's testimony, and then we hook you up in a local church. And Norm said, okay, let's let's get together in a week and talk about it. And so Adam was sitting there on my desk with me, and he walks out of the room, comes back with a white piece of paper and writes, I am second, and that was the logo. And so we mocked up a campaign and went and shared it with Norm a week later, and he said, all right, I'm in. I'll give you three million bucks, and that was the start of it. Um, at the beginning of, uh, of 2008. Yeah. Wow. So we never really fully understood what the Lord was doing until we launched that thing out. And we started with a Dallas based only advertising campaign where we bought probably 30 billboards around Dallas, Fort Worth, um, and launched out December 2nd, uh, 2008, um, and didn't attach it to any organization. And so it was fun to watch the media saying, who's behind this? And we had TV commercials and, you know, all types of things um, that we did early on. But it's really been an obvious, you know, work of God. And this is something that God planned before eternity existed or what when eternity existed you know, to use to bring people into the kingdom. And we were honored, you know, to have a chance to be involved. Well, for our listeners that if you've not experienced an I Am Second video, just Google it. Uh, and there are uh, a number of those to choose from. In fact, uh, you also may remember some of our listeners from uh, Season 2, Episode 36, Senator Brian Birdwell. And he has been on an I Am Second video. And so we'll make sure that the I Am Second links are in our show notes for today. Hey, Nathan, before we go any further, tell us quickly about your family. Yeah. Um, so I'm married to the ever so awesome Patty Sheets. And so Patty and I met at church. Um, and and so we've been married. Actually, it will be 25 years this next summer. Um, 
and she's just an amazing uh, woman, and it's just um, great and really cool to see how God picks the perfect spouse for you. Um, but then we have four children. Hudson is 21 and about to graduate from Texas A&M. And uh, no whoop, Jacob. Come on, uh, I was I was gonna it. do it. I, 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 I was, <laughs> you know, I was gonna make some joke about how he's gonna be super successful, you know, all this kind of stuff. But he's actually the, he's at an interview as we're speaking oh, right now. Nice. Yeah, uh, and so and then Haddon uh, is nineteen. He is also uh, down there. They're actually roommates down there in College Station. And so Haddon is uh, my very creative entrepreneurial uh, son. Uh, so he wants to do design, um, industrial design, fashion design. So he and I actually went to Paris this summer um, and went to go to different fashion schools in Paris, Institut de Francais and Esmod and some others. Um, And so he's really just seeking the Lord. Um, He just is an on-fire believer. And so it's awesome. And then my only and loveliest Sophie is 18 and she is about to graduate from high school. She's doing um, Liberty Online right now to finish, and she'll be done in January and to where she is headed to Liberty University, uh, which is my wife's alma mater. So she feels super excited to finally have a kid following her footsteps. <laughs> and then we have a 14-year-old son, Sam, uh, who is at a local uh, Prestonwood Christian Academy local school Um and he uh, loves to hunt and fish and all things outdoors. Um, and he's just uh, a, a lot of fun. So we're, we're very close as a family um, and spend a lot of time together. Well, that's good. Well, I'll be in Aggieland uh, tomorrow and all weekend. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's heaven on earth. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you got two there for sure. Hey, Jacob, uh, before you go ahead, I know uh, you're pretty modest about these things, but uh, share with our listeners uh, why you will be in Aggieland tomorrow night. Yeah, a uh, cleaning company that uh, I've had the opportunity to run past few years, we've gotten uh, uh, awarded into the Aggie 100, which recognizes wow. the top, uh, 100 Aggie-growing, uh, Aggie-owned companies. Um, and so uh, it's a very cool award. I went to a ceremony when I was in college uh, for the Aggie 100. I thought, man, it'd be really cool to be in this room one day. Uh, and, uh, it's cool to see how God's worked that out. And, uh, tomorrow night I'll, we'll be back in that room. So that is um, impressive. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'm, I'm also convinced there's only like five companies that apply, but, <laughs> uh, you know, we'll see when we get there. I had a nightmare the other night, uh, ironically enough, um, actually, and, and uh, another cool story, one of my roommates in college, his company, uh, is also in the Aggie 100. So we'll be sitting at the same table together. So that, that's been, nice <laughs> that's to see amazing. That, uh, come full circle, but uh, I had a dream the other night that I showed up late somehow to the event <laughs> and somebody notified me that we were an accidental invite and we actually came in 423rd place. Uh, and and so, so I've got this ongoing nightmare that I'm going to get there and, and not belong in the room. So, uh, but we'll see, we'll see how that goes, uh, tomorrow night. But, um, okay. So, so, uh, ministry, uh, ad agency, I am second, you've got all this going on. And then you then you go to the honey business. Uh, tell tell us about how you get into the honey game, uh, and 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 what took uh, took you there. Yeah, so I think uh, 1996, 97 was the most pivotal year of my life. Um, so I married Patty Sheets in uh, June of 97 or 96, um, and then uh, right after we got married, she said, "Hey, we need a hobby together." And she's probably thinking antiques and gardening. Um, and I was watching TV back in 1996. They were actually uh, had to promote what the internet was for because it was new. And so there was this 
commercial um, with the lady that had a bee suit on. And it said, uh, and she was covered up with bees. And she said, you can find anything on the internet. And so I'd always loved honey. And so I was like, huh. And so I went over and typed in beekeeping Dallas and up pulled this little North Dallas honey company. And so I called this guy and I asked him if I could buy a beehive. And he said, yeah, sure. And since we live in an apartment, I'd call my parents and ask him if I could put it in their backyard. And they were like, <laughs> okay. And so that's what I did. Bought this one beehive and, and, uh, but I absolutely fell in love with it. And, um, the gentleman that I bought the the beehive from Fred, he had about a hundred beehives, um, and he had about fifty of them uh, just down the road from where I lived. And so I started um, going over on the weekends and helping him work his bees. And and so this would have been into you know the fall of '96. I bought that beehive, and then into the spring of '97, started helping. You know, Fred not only doing the bees, but uh, he had cancer. He was about 75 and didn't know he had cancer, but had a hard time getting around. He was in about 20 local grocery stores. So I started getting up, putting honey on the shelf for him. And then uh, Patty and I started uh, at night going down to his house down in Dallas and bottling honey in his garage after she got off um, as a school teacher. And I remember she asked me one time, what are we doing? And I was like, I don't know. We're just we're helping this guy. You know, and I really didn't know, you know, what the um, end goal was. But that was the same year also in February of 97 is when I went on my very first mission trip and started doing pro bono work for E3 in the summer of 97. And then uh, was asked to come on staff in like October. Um, So I had the small ad agency at the time. and, And so we prayed, you know, over a couple of months, whether we were supposed to do that or not. And really at the end of that year, felt like that's what the Lord wanted us to do. But in that summer, you know, Fred and I went and picked up a bottle of or a drum of honey from a beekeeper and we were driving back to Dallas. And I remember Fred asked me if I wanted to buy the honey company. I was like, buy the honey company. Um, and I said, uh, how much do you want? He said, $10,000. I said, well, I don't have $10,000. He goes, I'll sell it to you on terms. <laughs> so I, uh, I went and asked my dad, you know, shared the whole thing with him and, and, uh, and so my dad told me, uh, son, just cause you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. But I, uh, I, you know, um, I did take a, you know, his advice was well landed because how I bought the honey company and what I bought the honey company, I didn't buy the bees. I bought the bottling side. And so when I bought it, I hired a distributor, um, to, bottle or to put the honey on the shelf and I hired a beekeeper to bottle the honey uh, for me. And so, um, so that was, you know, I bought that September 11th of 97. So we just celebrated our uh, 24th year, I think of owning nature Nates. It was, again, it was North Dallas honey at the time. Um, And so when I first bought it, um, I would drive every, every other weekend up to Paris, Texas, and I'd pick up, I'd rent a U-Haul trailer. I'd get about two pallets of uh, of bottles, and we'd bring them back. I'd unload them in my garage, and I had a small army of high school kids that would come over, and I'd pay them a penny a label. And they'd label the honey, and then I'd load it back up into the trailer, and I'd bring it to our distributors the next day. And that was the model. I did that for about five years, every other weekend. And it was um, a lot of work, and... Thank the Lord, we finally got a, a packer that would label the honey for us and actually deliver it. And so I got out of the delivery business. And so um, 
that same year, you know, went on a mission trip, bought a beehive, wound up buying North Dallas honey, and then going on staff with E3. And then I spent the next 10 years traveling to 80 countries around the world, you know, and doing missions and ministry. And I shut down the small ad agency that uh, we had started. And so it's, you know, I think it's an interesting journey as I kind of look, look back retrospectively, you know, over the career path that the Lord has brought me down, that I went from, you know, business to ministry and back to business. And and I feel like it was my training ground um, to learn how to try to live uh, with an eternal perspective, um, even, in, even in doing business. You know, and, and stewardship is a part of that, but it's more than just stewardship of money. You know, it's the old proverbial time, treasure, and talent. And trying to look at, you know, your business through that lens of making an impact for the kingdom. And, you know, I think churches do a bit of a disservice um, not bringing business people up to the front of the church on Sunday mornings and laying hands on them and sending them out like they do missionaries for short-term mission trips because, the greatest opportunity for people to make an impact for the kingdom is what happens Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And 99.9% of everybody you ever interact will never come to church with you. And I think that's the reason why Scripture says the purpose of the church is for the equipping of the saints for ministry. Because if people are equipped with how to share the gospel, how to disciple people, you know, how to live an authentic, transparent life in community with other people, um, then the way we live our life in, in the workplace, it's the Cinnabon effect. You know, you walk into a mall and you're like, what is that smell? Oh, my gosh. You know, and that's how we should live our lives in the workplace, that we live our lives and operate our business in a way that people come in and they're like, well, what is that? Well, it's Jesus, but you just don't know that. You know, we smell like life to the living and death to the dying. We're the aroma of Christ. And so, you know, I wish churches embraced that more um, to really uh, make what happens outside of the walls of the church Monday through Friday the pinnacle of their opportunity for success. So, um, you know, it's I think that uh, was a significant impact for being in full-time ministry. And I would say just professionally, I think, Another area is um, at E3, everybody had to raise support. And uh, so you essentially, we had 400 volunteers that worked there. And we literally would have people say, well, that's not what my supporters pay me to do. And so from very early on, from like age 27 to 40, I learned um, how to lead people, not with money. And the way you do that is with vision and passion and encouragement and servitude. Um, to people that you work with uh, to help them be successful in what they've been called to do. And so when I started doing business full-time and I could actually use money to, you know, control people, I was like, well, this is a freaking layup. I mean, this is easy. And, but that's not, the, that's not the default that I went to. I continued to try to inspire people with vision, passion, and uh, going back to the idea of using your business platform that was the, the platform that I had to be able to make an impact in people's lives. Wow. Well, That's just great. a true 
excellent example of, of a, a tremendous definition of leadership. And it's, it, it's really about casting that vision and, and helping them uh, see it and helping them be able to develop and, and follow and be able to do it because that's where their heart is. And uh, that's, that's the richness. Well, Nathan, you have seen just tremendous growth with your, with your honey company. And uh, when you bought it, it had a different name. There were just, uh, there was the owner and, and then you started off with just you and Patty and uh, then a couple of other people helping you. Now you have more than a hundred employees and uh, tell us about the growth and also tell us about maybe some of those other leadership lessons that you've learned along the way as you've just seen this company start out as just a very small organization and now is uh, very significant. Um, you know, it's funny, I'm actually uh, doing this interview sitting in the room in my house where in 2010 it was just me and doing when I started doing the honey company full time and then I in, added uh, Angie Driscoll uh, who was a bookkeeper that I had used um, in ministry uh, she did bookkeeping for us when we started this thing called Avenge Cube and so she um, worked for me then and so I asked her if she'd come in and do part time uh, help and then um, we just kind of continued to grow from there but it was um, an amazing, you know, there's so many fun and cool stories of, you know, getting into Walmart and getting into Costco here locally and um, and the growth that we saw during that time. But in, you know, we went from no employees to four, you know, I think when there were four employees that we were kind of sitting around the dining room in my house and my wife homeschooled our four kids at the time and she was like, you know, this is great having you guys here, but you need to leave. And, <laughs> and so at the time I still had my honey co-packed. And so, um, the guys that I, uh, that did all the video production, uh, the Tori Mayo, Scott and Sam, uh, they officed out of a, an apartment and I always thought this is so cool. And so I went and rented an apartment, you know, for our nature Nate's, um, team, and so as we continue to grow, you know, we added more. And so we went from our two-bedroom apartment, then we got a three-bedroom apartment. They were actually side-by-side. Side. And so in the three-bedroom, we had uh, sales and marketing. And then in the two-bedroom, we had operations, finance, and, and, and HR. And do you, so, do you think the other people in the complex were like, man, those people just go in and out of the same apartment every oh, day? Oh, no, dude. Are you kidding? They found out that we were the honey company, and they're always like, oh. come by going, hey, can I get some honey for free? <laughs> so that, we were like the most popular people in the entire apartment complex. So I was like, stop telling people what we do. <laughs> so, um, and so uh, that was, you know, we continued to grow. And then in 2013, um, you know, we had gotten into local Walmarts and, and really started growing. Um, and I, I'll back up. Um, so in 2010, we got into 121 local Walmarts in Texas. And then it was successful. Um, and they started taking North Dallas honey to Houston and Albuquerque and, and other, you know, areas outside of North Dallas. And I told the buyer, I was like, you know, people in Houston hate people in Dallas. They're, they're not going to buy Dallas honey. So, um, so I was talking to, to Patty, my wife, and, and just, I'd always had a lot of dissonance about North Dallas honey because when Fred started it, he was making North Dallas honey, but now it had grown to where, we weren't using North Dallas honey. 
And so um, she said, well, you should call it your, your nickname from high school or from college. And it was um, Nature Boy. And I was like, ooh, Nature Boy, honey, that doesn't have the ring. <laughs> so we, uh, so um, I, we started talking about it and did Nature Nates. And so I was in about 88 Kroger's at the time. And so in the summer of 2011, uh, we went up to the Kroger headquarter for our very first sales call. And I brought four bottles of honey. And I had uh, North Dallas Honey Company. I had Houston Honey Company, I had Nature Nate's Houston Honey Company, and I had Nature Nate's. And I had my phone number on the back of every bottle of honey I sold from 1997 until about 2014, 15. And I talked to every single people, every single person who ever called. I mean, thousands of people. And I knew exactly why people bought honey and what they were looking for. And so I shared all this with the buyer and, and, and we had really focused on the attributes, the big raw and unfiltered side of of, um, of, of the honey and and so the buyer looked at it and, and he was like all right we'll do the, like the city strategy dallas honey company houston honey company atlanta and i bought all these urls across the country and so we asked them if we could have that many slots in the warehouse because a warehouse might do 10 cities and if you had three SKUs per city then that'd be 30 slots and they would never do that and so he goes no we can't do that let's do nature nates and so he took us from 88 stores to 1,000 um, that wow. started at the beginning of 2012. But we got into Costco in the uh, fall of 2011. And when we started, we got in nine local Costco's. And they, after I berated them on Wednesday nights shopping in Costco um, of why they weren't carrying Nature Nate's honey or North Dallas honey, they finally said, okay, you can come in, but you're out in January because we're going to do a Kirkland private label uh, honey. And so uh, we came in for that short period of time with the goal of doing $600 per store per week, which is what they told us. And we came out the gate doing $3,600 per store per week. And then they took us from the nine clubs to all you know, 30 clubs in Texas. And we were still do we were doing $2,900 per store per week. And so that Kirkland brand launched and we stayed in and our, our buyer, Lisa at Costco, um, really stuck in there with us and, um, and kept us in there. And so that was the nature Nates brand that we bought, brought into Costco and it was very successful. And so then we went into those thousand Kroger's in the beginning of that year and we just had this fast and rapid growth. So in 2013, um, again, I was having my honey co-packed by another honey company and we were paying about a million dollars a year now in co-packing fees. And so I went to him and just told him I wanted to renegotiate and he said he wouldn't. So we decided to go ahead and open our own facility, which we did in uh, January of 2014. And and so that was where we really <laughs> got uh, lessons in, in business. Uh, when you go from no manufacturing to manufacturing and lots of employees and ERP systems and all those things that go uh, with it. But I feel like I definitely got my MBA and, and probably even a bit of my PhD, you know, under my belt because we built a second facility in Georgia in the summer of 2016, opened that. Um, and then Costco actually wanted a price reduction uh, right after I got that open in the beginning of 17, which resulted in us losing about $4 million in 17. And so we're in this fast growth mode. Um, but I finally, you know, I was always like, well, all I need to look at is the P&L. What do you need a balance sheet for? <laughs> and so 
I, I learned what a balance sheet was and, and the importance of it in uh, 2017, 18, and 19 um, as, I, as we really tried to focus on getting the company turned around and back in solid footing. Well, Nathan, I've kind of asked just so many questions uh, yeah, rolling yeah, exactly. through my mind. Uh, uh, first, truth or myth, uh, some people believe they should only eat local honey. Um, is, that, is that a fact or a myth? It's a, it's a myth. So what people are looking for is they think, oh, I need to eat honey for my allergies. That's what everybody is wanting. But the pollens that you're allergic to typically are oak, cedar, ragweed. None of those pollens are in your honey. The pollens that are in honey are from the nectar-producing flower. So it's vetch, alfalfa, clover, canola. And those, as the bees getting the nectar, he's also gathering the pollen. Um, if this was, if I was here representing, you know, Nature Nate's Honey Company, I could never say this because the FDA wouldn't allow me to. Um, but you just have to ingest pollen. Your body can naturally produce histamine that coats the nerve receptors and your ears, nose, and eye passages, and it has that uh, that uh, the coating inhibits the allergic reaction when airbound pollens try to connect onto that nerve receptor in your nose. And, and so it's just pollen. And so that's why the unfiltered side of nature nates raw and unfiltered raw has to do with the temperature um, that we warm the honey up gently um, to get it liquid enough to be able to strain out the, the wax and the bees. Um, but we're able to leave the pollen in there, uh, which is where all the good stuff is and all the flavor. That's one of the reasons why we've won best tasting honey in America, you know, three years in a row um, as nature nates, because we really approach that as an artisan craft, not just honey bottlers. Wow, I'm getting hungry. Uh, Let me ask you also, uh, now, you you initially, when you purchased North Dallas Honey Company, you separated the beekeeper piece and the production piece. The beekeepers that produce all of your honey, are they totally independent and scattered across the country, or how does that work? Yeah, so we have about 150 beekeepers that we've bought honey from. Um, And so this year, you know, we'll bottle 20 million pounds of honey. Uh, So it's a lot of honey. Uh, So we've got about a core 50 beekeepers uh, that we partner with. And actually, I just took a a number of beekeepers. We went fishing in Charleston over the weekend. I got back last night uh, just to spend time with them and and, uh, express our appreciation uh, for them. Uh, and most beekeepers are just awesome, solid. A lot of them, um, are, are believers. Um, and they, they really do the hard work. Um, but we've got this real core group, um, that we produce or that we purchase what they produce. And then we're also the largest bottler of organic honey, um, which comes from, uh, Brazil and Uruguay primarily. Um, and so we've got more than half of the market in the United States uh, for organic honey as well. Wow. And is now, that I've, under Nature Nates as well? It is, yeah. Yep. Uh, I've, I've also heard, and this may be a, a myth, switching business side real quick. I've also heard Costco is one of the hardest companies to get your product in for them to sell. Is, is, that, is that true? Um, yes and no. Um, Costco has a, they call it the treasure principle, uh, where they are constantly trying to find new products to bring in, you know, so people come in and they're, they're always discovering new things. Um, that is what they do. And it's also the way that they 
try to find the winners from the losers. And so they, they make it fairly easy. Um, I mean, just not anybody can come in because you have to be able to scale, you know? Sure. And so I remember the very first time where they ordered nine pallets of honey when I, you know, I producing by the case, I was like, Oh my gosh. And so yes, that's a pretty, that. <laughs> that's a pretty big, uh, scaling effort. Um, and so, you know, they've got different vehicles that they have to bring people in road shows where they don't own the product. You bring it in and, and you're selling it at your time and your expense. And then they, you know, they'll, they'll pay you for what you sell. Um, but it's, you know, Costco's business model is to have that churn so they can find the winners, which eventually that they can then turn into a Kirkland product and, um, put one over on you. <laughs> so yeah. be well, careful. <laughs> the, the, you know, I always, I, I love talking to other, um, just, just startup, uh, you know, j j businesses because there's, there's those insider, like our stories may not be the same and our products may be totally different, but you have those kind of the unique experiences. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm interested. How many of these, uh, pitches did you go into where they go? Okay. I'll, I'll take two pallets worth. Can y'all do that? And you go, yep. And then you walk out and then your, your business partner looks at you and you go, we can, we can do that. And you're like, we're going to oh, figure lady. it out. I mean, the, the last guest we had last week, he, uh, coffee company and he did a deal with Subaru and he was like, yeah, we can do that. And, and then went home and was like, I don't know how we're going to do that. Um, how, how many of those experiences, uh, uh, do you have? Um, you know, I remember I was sitting in a Costco buying office in Atlanta and, he was telling us, you know, I'm pretty good on Southeast honey. I really don't need Southeast honey. What I need is a Florida honey. And I go, we well, can do a Florida honey. No problem. What do you want? <laughs> and so literally we left the office. My broker was like, you do a Florida honey? I was like, nope, but we do now. <laughs> and so by the end of the afternoon, I had a, a, a label in the, in the buyer's email of what uh, Nature Nate's Florida honey was going to be. And so we spent the next two days calling around, finding beekeepers in Florida. And, and about two weeks later, we launched a Florida, um, you know, flavor forum. And, you know, I think that guys, uh, that, that build it, um, uh, that dream it, build it, sell it, go broke. And it's, it's dream it, sell it, build it. Hmm. And that's what you have to do. And, and so, you know, to, to be able to be nimble and respond quickly in, um, and operating with some fearlessness, uh, is required, you know, especially in our environment. And so you just got to be willing to jump out there. I remember, we had Sam's club had committed to put us into um, all 600 and some odd Sam's club. And we had them out to the farm at nature Nate's and they said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do three pallets. That's 1800 pallets of honey. And they were like, and we're going to do this in three months. And we're like, awesome. We are totally there. They left and we were like, we are so screwed. How are we going to do this? <laughs> you know? And so, um, but it's just a process of going through and saying, all right, where are the pinch points? Uh, what do we have to do? And, um, and failure is not an option, you know, burn the lifeboats and let's go. And we did it.
you know, we've been in Costco since 2000 or Sam's club since 2012 and um, they are a great partner. Wow. Well, I love it. I love those stories. I, I could, I could listen to those stories all day long, but I want, I, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about um, the, what we'll define as, I guess, extracurriculars of your business, but, but they're a core part of your business and they're, they're not a extracurricular to you. You know, you're a big principal or a big believer in what you have is not yours uh, and, and kingdom focused on in that regard. And you, you have honey gives hope. You also are a company. We see a lot of companies out there that preach uh, educating the next generation and some do it well. And some just say they do it. Uh, you guys really seem to, to t- be taking that approach of educating the next generation uh, and, and also this honey gives hope. So, so talk to us about that side or that core component of your business. Yeah. Um, you know, as I shared with you earlier, um, I feel like the Lord brought me through um, full-time ministry to give me um, an eternal perspective in, um, in business. And part of that is money. And, um, and so I don't, I just view money as a tool um, but I also believe what scripture says. And, um, I, we've been in a Baptist church. Uh, we were at a Baptist church for a long time. Um, and so I think that the Baptists tend to shy away from, uh, truly preaching about what scripture says about money, um, out of fear of it being a perceived as a prosperity gospel. Um, but it's pretty clear in scripture that says, you know, give to me, test to me, you give and your store and your wine vats will overflow. And so, I mean, the CFO I had at the time, I mean, we actually said we're going to grow by giving money away because it's that's what God says. He says, test me. And so um, and then also, you know, when I bought the honey company early on, I lived on personal support. And and so as the honey company grew, we actually, you know, I feel like the Lord gave us the honey company to be able to use it to help grow and exercise our spiritual gift of giving um, as something that's very important. But the very first check when Patty and I got married, um, the very first check that we wrote together out of our joint checking account uh, was to a, our tithe to the church. And it was a, uh, it was, you know, a stake in the ground of saying everything that we have is yours. And, and so we um, you know, have just always tried to hold things very loosely in our hands, operating in God's economy. If we believe that the Lord's putting it on our hearts to give it away, um, that we have to trust he's going to give it back to us if we need something. And, and so it requires faith. You know, it's a, it's a bilateral relationship, you know, from a faith perspective. So when we started doing nature nates, you know, I just viewed it as a way to make an impact and, um, I can I kind of beat myself up at times because I gave away um, more money than the money I lost in 2017 um, prior to that. And, you know, I think I'd given away about five million dollars and I lost four million dollars in 17. And I'm like, oh, man, should I have done that? Mm-hmm. Um, but here I am, you know, on the other side and all things work together for good for those who love the Lord who are called according to his purpose, you know, and he takes even our mistakes and does amazing things with them. And, and so I can't tell you if that was right or wrong. It's what I did. Um, and so, you know, for a while, the banks really controlled, um, you know, how much money we would give. Um, and so we did it within the context of our marketing budget. 
uh, of, you know, making a difference uh, for different organizations, but it's really, you know, part of the ethos, not just of, um, of the business, but of Patty and my heart. Um, you know, I can remember when we started VangieCube, she and I went to a um, History Sandful conference for the Jesus Film Project, which was Campus Crusade's major donor giving group. And, and they were challenging people, you know, to give $100,000 or $250,000. And she looked at me and she said, I think that's what we should do for VangieCube. And, you know, we lived on support making $50,000 a year. I'm like, okay, that's pretty <laughs> faithful. And um, it was awesome, you know, to see God fulfill that in a three-year period of time, which we did ultimately when we sold our um, our first house and we were able to take, you know, proceeds and pay that down or pay it off. Um, and so actually in the safe in my bedroom, I had that very check, that very first check that we wrote. And to me, it's that um, that altar you know, that talks about in Deuteronomy, you know, build an altar to God's faithfulness so you can tell the fourth and the fifth generations. And so I pulled that check out and showed my kids and like, listen, I mean, everything that we have. Everything that we have is the Lord's. And so we just have to. Um, we need to uh, live with a, a sensitivity, you know, to what he is prompting us to do and try to be faithful. And, you know, one of my greatest enemies is fear. And Satan just loves to come against me to try to make me fearful. Um, and that's one of those areas where it's like, oh, man, should I give it or not give it? But it goes back to that bilateral, you know, belief. Is if God's put it on your heart and you do it out of faith, you know, then you need to have that same faith that he... Don't worry about what you're going to eat, sleep, drink, or wear, um, but seek first the kingdom, and I'll add everything else to you. And and so, um, you know, I try to live in that Matthew six um, illustration. You know, when it comes to money, a lot of the time, all the time. Well, Nathan, what a testimony! We uh, it just really resonates. Rhonda and I last night were at church. Uh, we were participating in a marriage. Uh, class series of eight eight weeks, and there was a couple giving a testimony last night, and and um, and and just one of the things that one of the that was said that they were going through a really tough patch of their life, and uh, she remembers being in church on Sunday morning and singing the praise song, "The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away." Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, mm -hmm. you had you had years of prosperity. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then there was a tough year. And um, and that's where our faith comes in. Can we honestly say, blessed be the name of the Lord, when something that we treasure is taken away from us like that? And so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, say, I'd also say that the Lord uses money in my life to really help teach me lessons, you know, and it wasn't a hard year. It was hard years, <laughs> 17, 18, 19. Um, but it was also, you know, years that the Lord used all of that to spiritually um, get me to a place of desperation, you know, to, to deal with, you know, challenging areas in my own life that had really negative impacts on my marriage and, you know, family. And, and, and it was just exacerbated and highlighted, you know, with, 
money on the good side and then money on the bad side. Um, but that the hard part that we went through, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very grateful being on, on the other side of things, um, of the Lord to, uh, use it as a way to, uh, a process of sanctification as well. What would you say to a business owner that really is trying to find that balance that you seem to have found with Nature Nate's Honey, where you're doing great work in the uh, economy of, of our wonderful United States, but you're also doing great ministry as well, and, you, and you're trying to find that balance. What would you say to that, uh, that entrepreneur, that uh, owner of their company that they're trying to get more into the ministry segment and try to find that good, healthy balance. Do you have words of wisdom uh, for them? Um, you know, it's more sayings of, you know, if you're going to err, err on the side of generosity, um, especially if you're having to fire people or lay people off, things like that, you, you know, um, don't bring disruption to their family. Um, try to create a culture. Um, we have the Beatitudes at Nature Nates. And so we try to aspire people to be faithful, be kind, be loyal, um, be creative, be honest, um, be passionate. And then we get every quarter we have Beatitude winners um, and whoever nominated someone, uh, the nominee gets a $200 Amazon card, but also the person who nominated them gets a $200 Amazon card. So you know, the old proverbial inspect what you expect. And so we uh, try to create a culture that I think is reflective of a spiritual family um, and doing that in a way where you don't have everybody is spiritual. Um, and sometimes there are different religious backgrounds, you know, that are at work. Um, but, you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love, you know, love is the center of that. And so how can you create an environment that is based on love and inspire people to that and be in business. And you can find balance of both of those. Mm -hmm. Very Treat good. other people the way you want to be treated. Yeah, absolutely. Do unto others. Wise words, golden rule. Hey, Nathan, uh, you have already shared just some amazing stories, but uh, tell us uh, perhaps uh, something humorous or fun or something that people would never have thought that you've experienced of trying to uh, start your own company or maybe out on the mission field, uh, a story that uh, comes from your time there. Um, I mean, one of the, the crazier episodes was um, when one of my best friends, Jeff Blackard, and a gentleman who recently passed away, Jerry Cabin, out of Boise, Idaho. Um, and Jerry was a very, 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 very successful businessman. And the three of us were in Ethiopia, and, and I had just seen an article in um, National Geographic that they believed that the Ark of the Covenant was up at Lake Tana. And so I, I pulled out a map and I pointed it out to him. I said, hey, look, um, the Ark of the Covenant, they say, is here in this monastery and so we uh, it was only like 300 kilometers and uh, but that 300 kilometers was actually a 15 mile car or 15 hour car ride uh, through the blue nile gorge and so we got there in the middle of the night and um, got up the next morning found a boat took the boat out to this island and uh, went up you know like doors on the king kong movie you know went up knocked on these doors at this monastery and this old coptic monk 
came out and opened the door and we went in and spent a few hours, um, you know, talking through scripture with these Coptic monks, which was just fascinating. Um, and, uh, and then ultimately he took us over to this large building and inside of that building, there was a room inside of a room. Um, and he said behind this door is where the Ark of the Covenant, um, lies and so it was the room the outer room was filled with ancient um, artifacts from ethiopian kings and things of old uh, and the doors going into the interior room had big angelic icons painted all on the outside and it you know big ancient locks and and so it was just the most fascinating experience um in, in getting ultimately what we wound up getting arrested at the airport um, because when we were leaving um, some kids came up to us as we were going to get in our boat trying to sell us little books and so they were old 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 books of which we bought a couple of small ones and but Jerry bought this great big one and so we go to the airport and we start going through the scanners and they see that old book of Jerry's. They pull it out and they told him, you can't take this. This is a, you know, ancient artifact. He's like, no, I'm sorry. I bought it. And, um, and so they take Jerry up to the office and, um, and, you know, he's there under my responsibility. And so I go up to the office too. And, and we're, and I'm sitting there and I look down onto the tarmac and I can see him taking our luggage off of the airplane. And I look out the other window and I see a police uh, van, oh, no. you know, pulling up, and so um, they wound up taking us over to the the regional governor who uh, actually studied at Stanford, and we walked in and perfect English, you know, started to explain to us all the antiquities laws. Uh, but these were books that that uh, kids had broken into monasteries and you know stolen. So they took Jerry's great big book, but he said, oh, you can keep those small ones. So just in the other room, I've got this, you know, ancient geese language lambskin uh, book. Um, but, you know, that's that's one some of our, you know, greater adventures. Um, uh, well, I got to know, though, did you get inside that room that was locked that supposedly had the Ark of the Covenant? <clears throat> He said, you know, Jerry said, I will give you a million dollars if you open that door. And he, he wouldn't. And, but the, the story goes all the way back to Sheba, who went to Jerusalem and met King Solomon. And Solomon said, if you touch anything in my kingdom, you have to sleep with me. And so he gave her a really salty dinner at night with nothing to drink, put a pitcher of water in her room of which she took a drink after she went to bed and he jumps out and ha ha. And so she goes back to Ethiopia pregnant and has Abimelech, um, her son. And so when Abimelech was 16, he wanted to meet his father. So he traveled back to Jerusalem and he spent a few years getting to know uh, Solomon as well as learning how to be a Jew. And when he was going back to Ethiopia, um, Solomon sent the um, firstborn sons of, of the priest in, and the firstborn son of the high priest who, when they were traveling back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem, it was the high priest's son who supposedly had taken the Ark of the Covenant. And Abimelech said, well, obviously God wants to have it because he didn't strike us down. And they took it back to Jerusalem or back to Ethiopia. And so um, it is interesting that when Israel became a nation back in 1948, that there was a contingency of black Ethiopian Jews that they... Um, 
the patriot repatriated back to Israel um, during that time when Israel became a nation. And so imagine Ethiopians with kind of Jewish shaped noses. Um, and so when you go to Ethi- when you go to Israel today, you'll see Ethiopians there that are Jewish, you know, and that's but that's where they came from uh, was from that those priests that went back to um, Ethiopia. Wow. So we never did see it, but, you know. And uh, there's going to be a third temple, and eventually you got to have an ark in the third temple. So maybe it'll show up. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That might might be one of the more crazy stories we've had. Uh, Well, before I ask. Yeah, man. Well, before we uh, dive into the rapid fire, one last question. How many times have you been stung by a bee? Oh, many, many, many. Yeah, one of my worst was I, I had a bee inside my veil and I reached up to swat it and I tore the veil accidentally. Oh. And it's like that bee went, there's an opening. And <laughs> I swear like 30 of them went back, stung me in the back of my neck. I looked like a big marine, you know, with my neck kind of swollen up, leather neck. And so that or the very first time where I uh, went out with Fred, when I um, had first started helping him with honey, he was, we were extracting or we were taking robbing the honey from the bees and i had my tennis shoes on with my jeans and tucked them into my socks um but the bees could sting in through my socks and so when a stinger goes in they leave a pheromone and another bee comes that pheromone and another bee so by the time i was done i looked like i had elephantitis on my ankles they were you know big and swollen up so lots and lots (laughs) Yeah, that uh, yeah, that sounds painful. Uh, that, that is painful. It's uh, enough to deter the competition away, uh, for sure. Well, uh, before we let you go, uh, let us dive into some rapid fire questions to learn a little bit more about Nathan Sheets. Uh, and so, I'll lead off with the first one. Give us your best and worst advice you have ever been given. Um, uh, you know, my best advice was. Um, Son, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, which came from my dad, um, not because I followed it, but because I looked at how I bought the honey company differently. Um, and then the worst advice was probably um, uh, when when Jeff Blackard said, yeah, we should buy that leather book from those Ethiopian kids walking down to the boat. <laughs> Or going up to the office and following Jerry. You know, I should have just kind of gotten on the plane. <laughs> Goodness. Well, uh, you have uh, already named a number of people that have influenced your life, but who would you say was the most influential person in your life? Oh, man, probably my grandfather, um, Eldon Sonnenberg, who died um, on my, um, let's see, three years ago. Uh, So on my 49th birthday. Um, but he was just an amazing man, uh, band director his whole life up at, um, Sherman high school, um, up in, in Sherman, Texas. And, uh, so he and my grandmother, um, she was a nature lover and probably gave me my love for nature. And he loved to fish and gave me my love for fishing, which I'm passionate about. Um, and so, you know, just their legacy, um, Actually, my grandmother's great great grandfather um, was Benjamin Franklin Gazaway, and he was the first first Methodist missionary to the five native tribes of North America. And so he roamed in North Texas and Oklahoma, 
uh, with the uh, Indians and actually when Geronimo was in captivity, uh, led him to the Lord. And so you'll see in Geronimo's end of life, he'll have a big wooden cross around his neck. So um, my grandmother, you know, really carried that heritage um, forward into our family and moving every 18 months growing up. That was the one place I'd always come back to that was always the same. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. That's a history. Uh, well, tell us uh, this past, you know, year, year and a half has been a little crazy for everybody. Uh, but tell us about some big events that have taken place in your life over the past year. Um, you know, at the beginning, at the end of 2019, um, I had pursued um, some financial investors to try to get us out of our challenges at, uh, at Nature Nate's. In sitting in a deer blind on November 6th, uh, 2019, uh, which was actually my 50th birthday, um, I felt like the Lord told me, act like you're not going to get a deal done, and which resulted in me um, releasing uh, the CFO president we had at the time and taking our leadership team and reorganizing them and us going in and you know, redoing our budget and reorganizing leadership team to really uh, uh, make 2020, you know, get us back to a level of profitability, which we would get out from underneath the thumb hold of the banks and try to secure a new lender. And, um, you know, and so our team, it was an amazing year, um, you know, because we went in, we had had a hard time hitting a 5% EBITDA previously, and in January, we had a 17.5% EBITDA. And then February, a 15.5% EBITDA. Then COVID hit wow. Wow. in March, and we had a 27% EBITDA. And, and so it um, was by far the best, um, you know, impactful year with lots and lots and lots of challenges. And then, you know, going into this year and trying to maintain that. Um, but I think the thing that I find the most awesome in that, um, you know, we have a mixed group on our leadership team of, you know, of their people are, um, people of faith and, um, but not necessarily all believers. And yet, you know, I kept pointing to this is God's doing and for them to get to see that and experience it and continue to point back, you know, to them, and ultimately the Lord um, and, and seeing the impact on each one of them from a faith perspective is probably one of the highlights. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Nathan, you've traveled a lot on missions and perhaps traveled uh, an awful lot as well. What would you say is probably the best or most meaningful place that you've ever visited? Um, I mean, I could, come at it from a spiritual perspective, but I'm going to be totally carnal. And um, so I got to go fishing off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Um, And, you know, to, uh, to be up there um, at Lizard Island fishing for, you know, huge marlin um, out on the Great Barrier Reef and sleeping out there at night. We started Nature Nates in Australia a few years ago. And so, um, you know, I was, blessed to get to fish on the east coast and the west coast and kind of up and down and um again you know i i love to fish and and uh and had some 
it's an amazing place. It used to actually be my my uh, my go to place if the world went upside down, and then COVID hit, and now they're crazier than we are. So, um, I don't know where I'm going to go, but <laughs> it'll have water. I promise you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The true heart of a fisherman. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, Nathan, tell us the best and worst job you have ever had. Oh man, um, the worst job has changed my kids' diapers by far. <laughs> you know, just was not a fan. Um, and I would say the best job. Um, hmm, raising kids. Wow. That's good. That's yeah. good. Those two together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend who cut a deal with his wife. Uh, if she took every dirty diaper, he'd take every throw up. And, <laughs> I can handle throw. Yeah, I was say, I think I think yeah, it was a good deal he struck. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I would think about that one. Though. See that's it. See that's coming from a hospital guy. So you know, he, <laughs> bedpan. So what? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Well, Nathan, uh, tell us what book are you reading right now? You know, I don't. Uh, I don't read a lot of books. Um, uh, and I think it's um, when I do take time to read, I will you know, try to get into the word and spend time in the word. I did uh, download um, a book the other day that I have full intentions of reading and I'm pulling it up right now. But I've got uh, the four habits of a joy filled marriage and the four habits of raising joy filled kids. And, you know, I, I think that. um especially in these COVID um, periods of time, you know, very challenging, um, you know, for people to keep a joyful perspective. And, you know, the base, I've not even read the books yet, but the, you know, scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And, and, you know, and his mercies are new every day. And so it's a spiritual principle um, to live in a, you know, you can be joyful, not necessarily happy, you know, because which is that's what's more circumstantial. And so really trying to teach my kids, you know, how to believe the best um, in peoples and situations and trust the Lord in it. So so that's a, those are two books that I'm you know planning on reading. Um, probably one of the best books that was most impactful on me um, was a book called Journey of Desire um, by Eldridge. And. Uh, I read it back when we were starting Avenger Cube and trying to figure out, you know, what the Lord wanted me to do. And and so I started reading this book and, you know, his premise says that the word desire has somewhat of a negative connotation, especially in Christendom. Um, you know, and, and yet God puts those desires into our heart and scripture says he gives us the desires of our heart. And so those desires we need to recognize come from the Lord. He uses this really cool illustration of a walrus and the walrus is sitting in the middle of a desert under a palm tree beside this beautiful oasis. And he just is so happy because life is great. And he's hanging out there and, you know, he's like, oh, I have just the most amazing place. And but the wind shifts and starts blowing and he kind of smells, kind of puts his nose up in the air. He's like, that is so weird. That smell in that wind, it just reminds me of something. Hmm. But I've got my oasis. You know, life's great. 
So as the book progresses, the wind is blowing harder and it continues to stir these emotions in me. He's like, I should strike out and go find what's that wind's coming from because I just feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. But he can't do it because he's got this oasis. And the wind becomes stronger and stronger and eventually it's a storm and he comes in and wipes out his oasis. Mm. And so the walrus wakes up and his palm tree is blown over his lake is filled with sand and he's in total ruin. And so he looks over the hills, he smells that smell again coming from the wind. And so, cause he has nothing else left. So he strikes out to only crest over the hill and find the ocean. The very thing that he was created to be in and created for, but he wasn't willing to strike out for it because he was stuck in the small little oasis. And I just think that is the most amazing illustration of life, you know, in spiritual life of these desires that the Lord puts us in. One of my life verses is Ephesians 2.10, that God created us as his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works that he established beforehand that we should walk in them. And we discover those good works through Romans 12.1 and 2. Offer yourself up as a sacrifice And allow your mind to be renewed, your life transformed, so you can know and test God's good and perfect will. And so if we have this desire to want to make an impact for the kingdom, discover these good works, then it comes through that surrender and submission, you know, really on a daily basis, which to me is striking out from the oasis and not having to have destruction. And I've had destruction in my oasis you know, not have the destruction have to be the deciding factor. Well, I love it. Well, Nathan, golly, we, we cannot say thank you enough uh, for spending some time with us today and telling us just one, your, your amazing story, multiple amazing stories within that story uh, and just more about nature. Nate. So thanks so much for, for talking to us today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you guys. Absolutely. And to our listeners, uh, thank you always uh, for tuning in and listening. We're going to have all of the links to Nathan and Nature Nates in the show notes below, as well as I am second. So, so make sure you check those out. Check out some of the great products uh, that Nature Nates has and make sure you get your order in to get some of that uh, good honey. And thanks for listening today. Our guest today, Nathan Sheets, CEO of Nature Nates. Thanks so much for being with us, my friend, and I'm ready to head out and buy some honey and stock up our pantry. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in today. Make sure you subscribe and please share our podcast with others and follow us along on our Instagram account. Until next time, keep chasing what matters.